This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to the Charles Russell Speechley's podcast, following the story of Chris, a Brit, and Sam from the US. We explore issues faced by this international couple and their businesses and assets in a US to UK cross-border context. Before their happily ever after, there's a lot they need to think about, and we will stay with them in good times and in bad. Hello, my name is Sangana Chohan, a partner in our tax, trust and succession team. In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Summers, another partner who specialises in advising in a US and international context. I'm also especially pleased to be joined by Ian Younger, who is a director at Frank Hearth, an accountancy firm with a focus on US and UK tax and advice. Welcome, both of you. Hello. Hello, Um, thank you. So once again, we're talking about Chris, who is a UK person, but most importantly about Sam, who's a US citizen moving to the UK and marrying Chris. She's hoping that once she's left the US, she can ignore all of her US tax obligations and move directly into the UK. Does that sound about right to you guys? Unfortunately not, and probably not an unreasonable expectation for many people thinking tax is based on on residency, but where you have US citizenship, the, the, the IRS will follow you wherever you go around the world. So unfortunately, she's still a US taxpayer for all purposes, whether that's income tax or, or, or gift and estate taxes. So it, it's a rather unique system. And I think there's only one other country that has similar issues, but not, nothing anywhere like the same might as the US. What's the other country, Ian? Um, I believe it's Eritrea. So uh-huh. it doesn't quite have the same uh, the same impact that the US government does. Right. So if she as a US citizen has to con- still con- think about U- US taxes, does she now have to think about UK taxes as well if she's living in the UK or could she ignore that? Yes, uh, I'm afraid she's got to think about being a taxpayer in the UK as well um, once she moves there. Now, because she's a, she's a foreigner to the UK, she may be able to pay tax on the preferred remittance basis of taxation. So she only pays what on what she generates in the UK, what she brings to the UK, um, and that's a choice she'll have to make, but it still makes life complicated with two tax systems in play. So if she's got to think about both US and UK taxes, what should she be doing with her assets? Should she leave them in the US where they were originally? Should she move them out of the US? What What is the best option for her? It's a good question, Sanger. I think the first thing is that when it comes to investments to bankable assets to brokerage accounts uh, the first problem that sam may find is that if those are in her personal name her her bank her her broker her her fund provider may actually want to kick her out when she tells them that she's shifted her address to the uk and the reason for that is is regulation is financial services regulation because she will be with somebody regulated with the sec um, and not with the FCA in the UK um, and her bank and so on may be telling her, well, you need to move all your accounts to our our UK presence or our presence in the EU, perhaps. Um, And that's not necessarily a good thing because they may not have uh, investments uh, available that are perhaps suitable from a tax point of view for the US. Could you elaborate on that? Sorry, Ian. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, mean, I think when we talk about being, say, resident in the UK and still a US taxpayer, it, it, it's all about being 
or thinking in a dual fashion. So anything she has to think about has to be dual qualifying. So the, the US has, for a better word, a dislike of, of anything that, that, that's foreign from a, US, from, from, from a US perspective, anything outside the US. So that includes investment types. That includes looking at ordinarily what a UK resident may consider investing in without thinking about the US. The poster child of, of those rules is the passive foreign investment company rules, the PFIT rules, which can really have some disastrous tax effects in the UK in terms of the, the tax rates imposed on income received and gains that are generated. But similarly, she'd have to think about her UK implications as well. And the UK has their own rules around foreign foreign investment that, that, that may focus on US investments not qualifying or not being treated preferentially in the UK. So I think when we talk about dual qualifying, we talk about tax preferred items in either jurisdiction and good tax planning from one one side compared to the other we always have to think in a dual a dual fashion so what's tax preferred in one jurisdiction wouldn't be tax preferred in the other so if individual investments are going to be a problem could she just get around all of that by putting it into an isa for example an individual savings account in the uk which would provide that tax shelter in the uk no the short answer to that um, the reality is that, yes, it may be tax-free in the UK, but then it goes back to Ian's point, it's a PFIC is what you get in the in the US if you're buying a uh, those investments, they're funds, they're UK authorised funds, so the US doesn't like them. Or, best case, even if it's just cash, it's still not tax-free on the interest as it would be in, in the UK. What about if she put her assets into a joint account with Chris, perhaps after they're married? Would that somehow rub out the US tax implications and just have it as a UK account because Chris is a UK person? That would arguably be, be even worse, Sainer, because um, she would be moving assets from uh, being a US person to a non-US person. And the problem is that the the US tax rules don't really recognize her spouse as being like a spouse. So you can't transfer things without tax consequences to your, to, to your uh, spouse. And it would suddenly drag him and that account fully into the US tax nets because there's a lot of presumptions about whose money is it anyway, who has contributed, whose money is it from the point of view of the US tax reporting. So that's, that's not great news. There are other implications I think that Ian can elaborate on as well in terms of what that might mean. Absolutely. I think when you're talking to a married couple generally, you try and think about them as a as a unit. But I think where you have a scenario like this where you have a mixed marriage where one person is US, the other person is non-US, keeping them, them separate in many occasions in bank accounts and investment types is really the big part of that is, is hugely important because, as, as Mark said, ability to use a remittance basis in the UK that wouldn't be wouldn't be available to Sam's husband is a benefit but you have to think about how you utilize that in the most efficient fashion similarly if you're investing in the US and you, the, the husband's involved then the husband's going to have issues from a UK perspective so really looking at them as a looking at the planning opportunities as separate taxpayers is really important here okay so she needs to keep her assets separate. She needs to put, keep them in her own name, potentially. What are the best solutions for her? So I think fundamentally she needs to decide whether she wants to 
keep her investments largely in the US and just purely worry about the US tax system and reporting there, in which case she can be on the remittance basis. But if she does that, she's going to have to think of some kind of alter ego for herself as a legal structure, perhaps a limited liability company or perhaps a, um, a trust of which she's, she's the only beneficiary um, back in the US in order to make the bank or the, the, the investment house feel that you know that they're dealing with an American on American soil. Um, and then she's got access, hopefully, to tax-appropriate investments there. If, however, she wants really to be dealing with things in the UK, because, frankly, she's going to be wanting to bring money all the time into the UK um, uh, and not be double-taxed between the U US and the UK, then she needs to think differently about who she's selecting as a money manager because she's always going to be caught by the US. She can't escape that. And then she will need those investments to be UK appropriate as well. That narrows things down significantly. And there are um, banks and uh, asset managers out there who specifically focus on basically dual qualifying or dual, dual suitable investments for people such as Sam. Uh, and that might be where she would have to look. I mean, you mentioned some really interesting points there, there, Mark. And I think as far as the, the conversation initially with, 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 with the couple, a lot of it comes down to how long they intend to stay in the UK, what the funding needs are in the UK. And that may well dictate what they, they do with her, with, with Sam's assets outside of the UK. If there's no intention of, of bringing those funds in, there's no intention of, of, of staying long term in the UK, then that may offer some real opportunity for her as the US person to protect her, her income and gains from UK taxation. Won't protect her in the US because the US will tax on a worldwide basis irrespective of residency. But if you're only dealing with one jurisdiction, it makes your options a lot broader than they are when you're thinking about two. But if the intention is to stay here longer in the UK, is to, to need the offshore money in the UK, then issues such as a remittance basis, which is really a powerful tool for most non-domiciled individuals resident in the UK, may not be so good for a US resident if they're paying tax, for instance, in year one on a certain item of income, bringing it to the UK in, say, year five, and not getting a credit for the US taxes previously paid. And that you know, brings up the spectre, as Mark mentioned, of double taxation. And that's anyone in Sam's situation avoiding double taxation, although it sounds obvious, that's the minimum that we, we need to achieve for them. So it comes down to double taxation and making sure if she's going to be bringing the money into the UK, that she's able to pay tax on the same investments in the same year in the US and the UK in order to claim that all important double tax credit. That's right. And in, in most scenarios, not all scenarios, but in most cases, the UK would have first taxing rights on the majority of income and gains, even if they may be US, US sourced. So it's essential to ensure that the timing of tax between the US and the UK occurs at the same time and the payment of UK taxes is done in an efficient fashion. For many of our clients, they're typically US citizens living in the UK, pre-year-end planning really involves looking at UK tax liabilities to ensure that sufficient UK taxes that will be falling due are paid at the right time to claim a credit against the US liability. And when you say year-end, Ian, do you mean UK year-end, US year-end? Because that's got to be another difficulty, the fact that there are two totally different tax years. Absolutely. You know, from a US perspective, we're always talking about 31 December, so a calendar year being the tax year. 
I've had many a conversation with, with clients, with, with their advisors in the US trying to explain the April 5th um, tax year end. I've never quite managed to get it fully across to them such that they understand it. But it, it's definitely an issue. And it's definitely an issue for somebody who, for example, is investing in the US and they're generating K1s, US tax packs from a US point of view that don't correlate to the, the, the UK tax year. I think that plays to Mark's point about having the right advisors on the investment side. The ability to provide even a tax pack on a December year end and a 5th of April year end. And that, that's really important you're trying to prepare a tax return for a client. And, and, a, and a further sort of complication to that, it, it's, it feels like a really obvious point, but it catches people out all the time, is that when it comes to capital gains, you're calculating them in two different currencies. And so therefore, with investments or anything else, what may look like a gain in one country may be, in fact, a loss in another. Mm. And you end up not thinking about these things in the right way. And you start thinking that you can bring things in tax free or uh, deal with them in a particular way because the currency moves in one or other direction. Absolutely, especially where we are now. I mean, sterling gains are significantly inflated, maybe from what they're looking at on the US side. So just going back to this, the topic of tax returns, Ian, that you mentioned, will Sam need to file separate tax returns in the US and the UK going forward, or will just one universal set work? Unfortunately, it's disclosure in both both countries. Um, the US is somewhat, again, from a tax system, it's unique in that the vast majority of people in the US file tax returns. So Sam will be used to a file filing tax returns in the US, I would assume, um, and probably state level filings as well. The US, the, the federal income tax return, the form 1040, that's, that's a, a constant for her. So whether she's living in the UK, living in the US, she'll have to file a form 1040. I think what most people are surprised at, either those that are coming outside the US for the first time, having foreign in their world, or the scenarios we've all seen of the, the accidental American who's suddenly understanding their, their US obligations is the simply the level of disclosure that needs to be made to the US. So the income tax return reports worldwide income and gains. Again, that nothing changes. And that's the return they claim the credit for the UK taxes suffered to, to reduce the US liability. But there's also a requirement really to, to, to make significant disclosure in relation to any non-US companies where a greater than 10% interest is owned and there can be some issues with combining the shareholdings of um, the US person and the non-US citizen spouse, interest in non-US partnerships, interest in non-US trusts, it, 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 even things as, as basic as owning a, a, a non-US bank account, that, that gives rise to reporting in the US. So people are, whereas in the UK, generally a lot of people don't file returns, but in this scenario, I think she would have a requirement to file, and Mark can talk to that. But in most cases, people are surprised at the level of disclosure that needs to be made to the IRS. And unfortunately, where there's a reporting to the Internal Revenue Service required, if that's not carried out, if that's not done in a timely fashion, the penalties for non-compliance on foreign reporting really are, are eye-watering. And generally, so the, the starting point is $10,000 per failure to file. And these are not income tax returns. These are just information for the IRS. And Ian makes a good point there about the sort of the reciprocal effect in the UK. You're under a, an obligation to file a return. And one of the things that Americans who come over, and we're talking about Sam coming from a wealthy family, what we often observe is the fact that they hear something about the remittance basis 
and then just assume, okay, that's fine. They just file something very basic in the UK and can forget about anything outside. It has always been the case, but particularly since 2008, that you have to claim the remittance basis of taxation on your tax return. And if you don't, then you are subject to worldwide taxation, which means that Sam would be reporting everything on her tax return in the UK and having to do all of that. And it's very easy, therefore, for people such as her to quickly drift into non-compliance. And again, the, the moral of that story these days with something known as the requirement to correct um, has been that there are pretty draconian penalties um, for failure to, to file and pay tax in the UK correctly. And whether that is fairly innocently done or whether it was really quite clandestine, that distinction is, is largely dropping away these days in terms of how somebody might get penalised, particularly if the revenue catch up with you first. And that's, that's an excellent point though, Mark. I think in that scenario, if somebody hasn't understood their UK filing obligations and they're looking backwards to rectify that, if they're a US citizen, almost certainly that's going to lead to double taxation because they haven't done the foreign tax credit planning. They haven't had the thought process into the interaction of being a dual resident in the US and UK. Ian, you mentioned earlier that Sam will need to report all of her foreign bank accounts and other assets that she eventually holds. What about any assets over which she has a power of attorney, for example? So if Chris appointed her as his attorney, what would that mean? I mean that, that could lead to disclosure as well in the US. I mean, the, the, the foreign bank account report is, is, is really a very wide, wide level of disclosure required. It's any account in which she has a, a ownership interest, either in her own name or in joint name. So if she had a joint account with her husband, that would be a reportable account in the US and disclosing maximum balances, the, the details of the bank, the account number. So, so lots of detail, but it also extends as far as any account over which she has a signing authority. So if that power of attorney gives her an ability to, 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 to have a signing authority over an account, that needs to be disclosed. We've had scenarios where people have been treasurer of the school, the school PTA and that had a signing authority over the, the accounts or certain accounts within the, uh, the PTA and that had to be disclosed. And all these things cause a level of, of concern. It's information. It doesn't bring the husband or any account into taxing in the US, but it does create a level of disclosure where there is, if there is non-compliance, penalties can be assessed. And, and we are increasingly seeing the IRS focus on on these penalties. Historically, maybe not so much, but, but we've certainly seen the IRS asking more questions around these disclosures. I think it worth saying, Senna, that in the context then of when, say, Chris and Sam come to do estate planning, that very often you know, they will want to have what are termed lasting powers of attorney, the, the, the British equivalent of, of durable powers of attorney in the UK and, and register them with the, the Office of the Public Guardian. And the problem with that is that ordinarily the way these things are done is to automatically give each other full powers of attorney over each other's assets before and after they lose their capability of dealing with them. So there you go, you've suddenly created uh, a filing requirement in the US over lots of accounts without knowing it, let alone then the temptation of what we talked about earlier, which is just for simplicity, why don't we have a joint bank account? Well, that's one of the reasons why you don't. 
And I think I think I mean, just, just just following on on from that, I think when we're talking about compliance, we're talking about reporting. It follows on along the same lines of the dual qualifying discussion around investments. It's ensuring that you're taking the advice, taking the compliance um, uh, discussion to a firm that understands those issues. It, it may be the case, and we see it fairly regularly. You know, whether the foreign bank account report is absolutely is second nature to us because all our clients have this obligation. If you have an, a, an accountant in the US who understands US disclosure, absolutely. The foreign bank account report may be something that's not necessarily something they've seen regularly and isn't part of the conversation. So I would certainly say that the, the, the tax accounting side is and, and the legal side is all essential to have that dual qualifying overview. I think absolutely those are the takeaways for me is that Sam needs to make sure she's got proper advice about her tax reporting tax obligations she's also got to make sure she's thinking properly about her investments making sure that they work in both jurisdictions and she just needs to be really careful make sure she's got proper advice on all of this we've seen a lot recently you know maybe we'll talk about FACRA in a moment we've seen a lot recently a better awareness of the US obligations and there's a absolutely inability to plan but when you're looking at things like foreign tax credits you're looking at things like good compliance it has to be done forward thinking it has to be it has to be done with an understanding of the implications whether that's investment even things like charitable giving and succession planning all these things have a tax implication so being a u.s citizen living in the uk is a unique set of tax facts it, it does create require a level of compliance a level of advice that isn't necessarily required in other circumstances, the remittance base, as I said before, fantastic. But um, for, for a non-domiciled individual, but you add that US connection to it, still potentially very useful, but needs a level of thought that other non-domiciled individuals don't have to worry about. And I think probably, there's a, Ian, you make a very good point there about planning opportunities, and that's perhaps for another discussion. But the ability for someone like Sam to actually do a lot of fairly straightforward planning to minimise the UK tax exposure before arriving in the UK. If she can do that ahead of time and takes advice ahead of time, particularly in the UK tax year before she arrives, then there's there's lots of opportunities to mitigate a lot of these these problems and work on them. Um, but planning, as ever, is is key and being uh, forearmed and forewarned about it. Thank you to Mark and Ian for their helpful comments there about Chris and particularly Sam's tax filing requirements now that she will be both in the US and the UK tax net. I think it's clear from what they have said there's a lot to think about and it is really important for her to take specialist advice because there is quite a lot that can go wrong. We are going to leave this podcast now, but do look out for our bonus episode where both Ian and Mark talk a little bit more about FATCA and information exchange. Thank you for listening to this podcast, part of our series following Chris, Abrit and Sam from the US as we unpack some of the legal issues that they face as they start their lives together. You can find the rest of this series at the Charles Russell Speechley's website or on Podbean, iTunes or Spotify. This podcast discussed the UK and US issues at high level only, based on current law and revenue practice. It does not contain legal advice. If you or your clients would like to know more about any of the issues we've discussed, please email us on untangled at crsblaw.com.
This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.